Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Growth hormone deficiency is a rare disease, and according to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, the prevalence is estimated in about 1 in 4,000 to 1 in 10,000 people. Dr. Rohan Henry is here to speak with us about his research, Childhood Growth Hormone Deficiency, A Diagnosis in Evolution, The Intersection of Growth Hormone History and Ethics. Dr. Henry is a pediatric endocrinologist and an attending physician at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He's also a faculty member at The Ohio State University College of Medicine in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you for joining us today. Can you please give us an overview of your research? Okay, so I think our background is very appropriate at this time. So earlier on in my career, I had a number of patients who were diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency. And because of um, limitations in terms of care, mostly based on insurance factors, these persons were lost to follow. And then possibly like maybe even up to four or five years afterwards, these persons came back to the clinic because the primary care would have sent them back. And their growth was pretty normal during that period of time. So I started to question as to whether or not they were truly growth hormone deficient because I don't think it's a case where the growth hormone deficiency miraculously um, you know, got cured. However, I realized that there are a lot of limitations in terms of diagnosing growth hormone deficiency and those patients were just a false positive um, result. So this review paper really is looking at you know, the limitations of growth hormone deficiency in terms of a diagnosis as, as well as how the cutoff has evolved over the past more than close to, close to 40 years. So talk to us a little bit more about that. How and why has the diagnostic criteria for childhood growth hormone deficiency evolved over time? All right, so that's a very great question. So if you ask most persons in the field who have a pretty solid knowledge of this topic, um, you can actually trace the evolution of the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency to the availability of recombinant human growth hormone. So the first growth hormone product was actually sourced from cadavers. So in an article in 1958 in one of our seminal endocrinology journals, the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, Raymond at the time had uh, really um, spoken about, or really sorry, written about the height gains of a 17-year-old patient who was profoundly growth hormone deficient, that after he got growth hormone, his growth velocity had actually increased. Uh, so cadaveric growth hormone was used up until about 1985, where three persons in the United States and one person in Canada developed a prion-based encephalopathy, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which we know that as mad cow disease, which is similar to mad cow disease. And so the use of cadaveric-derived growth hormone had to be abolished. In about 1979, the human growth hormone gene was cloned, and that served as a catalyst for testing recombinant-derived growth hormone, um, human growth hormone. So it was kind of serendipitous that at the same time when you had those persons who were diagnosed with Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, that the recombinant DNA-derived human growth hormone was approved by the Food and Drug Administration. So as you can imagine, when you were using cadaveric growth hormone, there was an issue with limited supply and possibly great demand. So there actually had to be a height cap in the 1960s in terms of once you use growth hormone, once you reach to about five feet, your growth hormone was going to be terminated because of the limited supply. 
of caliber growth hormone. So there's an issue with supply relative to demand, but as you can imagine, once we started using recombinant human growth hormone, there is more supply in terms of demand. So many of us think that it's the change in sourcing of the growth hormone, which has formed, uh, which has acted as a catalyst for this evolution of the threshold for diagnosing growth hormone with cases. So in 1965, the level was about five nanograms per ml in terms of growth hormone. And it rose to about seven in 1975. And once recombinant DNA-derived growth hormone took over, the level that we use currently is about 10. And I should um, preface this to say that 10 is used in the United States and Poland. The other countries use seven, but we're still um, using 10. What are the ethical implications regarding the diagnosis of childhood growth hormone deficiency? All right. So I think any our talk about ethical implications, we have to use a framework. And the framework which most persons with ethics knowledge use, there are four pillars of ethics. There is beneficence, there is non-maleficence, and these two really are exposing the principle that the provider is acting in the patient's best interest. There is also autonomy, meaning that respect for persons, and there's also justice really, really talks about allocation of resources. So if we take the first two, beneficence and non-maleficence, um, it's a case where if we're making this diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency, and we're giving the growth hormone, if the person is not truly growth hormone deficient, who is there to benefit from this? In terms of non-maleficence, where we're supposed to do no harm to the patient, who is to say that if we're giving growth hormone to somebody who's not truly growth hormone deficient, but just qualifies to get growth hormone based on meeting a certain criteria, who is to say that we're not harming these patients? I mean, if you go back to the earlier days of when growth hormone, um, the studies were initially done with recombinant human DNA growth hormone, there were post-marketing surveillance studies, which the aim of those studies were actually to capture if there were any adverse um, reactions to this new drug. However, like with many databases, there are a couple of limitations. One of the limitations being that they're dependent on physicians to report adverse events. And, you know, because that's going to be subjective, the physicians may not have reported all adverse events which happened. So who is to tell that if we're giving this medication to a particular patient, um, you know, they may have some features which have developed, but we don't know if those are adverse reactions. The other ethical pillar is that of autonomy. So kind of respectful persons. Now we think of autonomy in terms of treatment and even research, we think of the ability to consent. So adults usually consent for treatment and research, whereas children, depending on your age, if you're like a teenager, you know, 16 or 17, you can actually assent, which is kind of your parents make a final decision what you are assenting. And the issue is that who is to say that the parents are making the right decision in terms of approving the use of this medication for the child if the child isn't truly growth hormone deficient to benefit from this. The other ethical pillar is that of justice. So when we think about justice, we think about allocation of resources justly. So in the United States here, we have commercial insurance and we have Medicaid and Medicare. Um, some of these insurances don't approve growth hormone readily as other um, insurance companies. And the issue is that who is to say that growth hormone needs to be approved in one person versus not being approved in another person. So it gets to kind of a slippery slope where everybody 
may not have an equal opportunity at receiving your phone call. The other thing is that if you have a little more financial means if your insurance rejects you may be able to pay out of pocket even though the cost of growth hormone is really expensive i mean we looked into this topic a couple of years ago it was ranging anywhere between like 35 and fifty-four thousand dollars per year depending on what insurance you have so this topic is fraught with ethical connotation how do you believe that all of this should impact clinical practice all right that's a very good question so i personally in my practice i kind of pride myself with not trying to practice cosmetic endocrine. I think that if you have somebody who you um, have diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency and the person isn't truly growth hormone deficient, um, the question is, are you doing something which is not medically indicated? There's kind of a, a thin line between what's medically indicated and what's not medically indicated. I, for one, in my practice with patients like this, I will always say to the parent, you know what? If, they, if the child is diagnosed with a growth hormone deficiency based on a level of like six to 10, I sometimes say to the parents, you know what, this kind of is a great area because in my personal experience, even though stimulated values may not be predictable pathology on MRIs, kids with a lower stimulated value often have true pathology on MRIs. This is not to say that if you have a low stimulated value, you can't look at true pathology. In fact, we did a study just recently, which had shown that most of the kids with tumors were stimulating to values of less than two. So there's some correlation between pathology and peak growth hormone levels. So I will often say to the parents, you know what, your child qualifies to get growth hormone. And I may not use the term that the person is truly growth hormone deficient because they qualify because of our metric that we have at this point in time. And I think that's very important in terms of how we practice because for those patients who are truly growth hormone deficient, meaning that the ones who have a true reason not to be able to produce enough growth hormone. For example, we're thinking of persons with like CNS tumors. We're thinking of persons sometimes with anatomical abnormalities. Some of these persons may actually require lifelong growth hormone therapy because growth hormone is not only essential for linear growth. It also has certain metabolic effects. So as maintaining your cholesterol level, it also impacts quality of life. So the issue that at it stands today, we, this is an overdiagnosis that is happening at this point. And so the true prevalence of growth hormone deficiency is about one in 4,000, which was based on a Utah study years ago. Arguably, um, the methodology has changed, but um, we have a number of patients in our clinic who, you know, are qualified to get growth hormone and they're not truly deficient just because of a numeric value, which from my standpoint, I will treat these patients because they have reached threshold to be treated, but I will often have that conversation to the family. And some persons will say, you know what, we don't want treatment, but the majority of persons will want treatment. So I don't think I'm convinced at this point that I'm actually doing much harm. So I think I can go along to start treatment. Why do you believe that this is so important to study? Right, I think that this topic is really important to study um, from the standpoint of a provider first and the standpoint of a parent slash patient. From a provider standpoint, I think that we should be aware that, you know, this diagnosis is not clear cut. In fact, we use a value of 10 as being the criteria for normal growth hormone levels, 10 or above, which is actually not very scientifically based. It's the fact that when a number of provocative agents were tested, 10 was seen as close to the mean value for these provocative agents. But we use 10 for all of the agents 
And as you can imagine, there's going to be differential stimulation going from one agent to the other one. So it's kind of hard to use one value <laughs> as the cutoff, even though that's what we use. So from the provider standpoint, they should recognize that, you know what, this is kind of not a clear-cut diagnosis. From a parent standpoint, I think you can make the point that, you know what, your child may qualify to get treatment, but your child may not have a true pathology. So I think it's important that we be candid with our parents in terms of this diagnosis. What's next for future direction on this topic? That's a great question, Jessica. So I have to preface this by saying in endocrinology, we rely a lot on assays in terms of how we come up with a particular lab value. So the conventional assays that were used for growth hormone were by a methodology of what we call regular immune assay, where you had an antigen antibody reaction. So the growth hormone gives the antigen the antibody reaction. So the antigen reacts to the antibody, and then you get a complex form, and then that basically causes you to have a particular growth hormone value. Those regular immune assays which were developed were not very specific. So there was a great deal of overlap between different growth hormone monomers. However, more recently, endocrinology, we have started using a method of tandem mass spectroscopy, which is actually more specific. So as you can imagine, when you have more specific assay, you're going to have a lower value. So I'm envisioning that once most centers are using tandem mass spectroscopy, the value ultimately will be lower. But this is going to take a concerted effort between a number of players, clinicians together with lab personnel, in terms of, you know, decreasing the number at which we make the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency. So a similar thing happened where, you know, standardization is going to be very important. So in Japan, some places which have like government-run healthcare, these methodologies are pretty standardized. Well, it's hard to do that in the US because there's lots of different systems here. So I'm imagining that once the specificity has increased because of a change in methodology that we're going to have to move into direction, which most of Europe moves into, which is using a value of like seven instead of the 10 that we use now. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on this topic that you think that we missed? All right. So I think the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency is a pretty important topic, which is fraught by a number of limitations. And that limitation is really imparted by the inconsistencies of proactive stimulation testing. So just to give you a background. So we can't measure a random growth hormone level. And the reason why we can't measure a random growth hormone level is because growth hormone goes in peaks and troughs. So if you've got a value, which is a trough, you could be fooling the thinking that the patient is not producing enough growth hormone. So rely on the fact that you can give a proactive agent. We think of things like arginine, clonidine, um, in former years, we used L-DOPA. And by giving that proactive agent at different time intervals, you can get a peak stimulated growth hormone value. Now, this test has a lot of limitations. One of the limitations is that it's affected by BMI, even though we don't adjust for BMI when we see those results. I can tell you if you have like an obese patient, the patient may have had a low growth hormone level and proactive testing but that person is not necessarily growth hormone deficient. The other issue which affects some of this testing, especially in the peripubertal period, is that of what we call sex steroid primates. So just to give you a little background, so at the time of puberty, 
you have growth hormone, which is normally being produced, but you have an augmentation of that growth hormone response by sex steroids. So if you have a patient who comes to your practice and the person is not growing all that well, um, it could be that the patient may be a late bloomer or the patient could have growth hormone deficiency. So late bloomers will develop on the later side. So for example, you may have a 12 year old who you do what's called a bone age and the bone age may be nine years old. So they're, even though they are 12 based on birthday, their bones are actually less mature. So that person in the late bloomer, that person may not be producing enough sex steroids at that time. And when you do a growth hormone stimulation test on them, they actually fail the test. So there's what's called sex steroid priming where you give a dose of testosterone about seven to 10 days before an extra dial, about between two to five days before the stimulation test, which is going to decrease your positivity on the test. So it's going to prevent the person from failing. So there isn't, so this test is affected by a, a number of factors. And I think as clinicians, we should bear in mind that we should only do this test if we have a high likelihood that the person has growth hormone deficiency because of the false positive that you can get it. So you have to vet your patients very intensely prior to doing that test and not just do the test on everybody. I think that's one of the most important take-home messages. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you joining the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me, Jessica.